You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Thank you, Kirkwood. Hadn't the orchestra been incredible the last couple of weeks? They really have. And uh, oh, glorious day. Uh, Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Morning. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to take it this morning. Look at a little unusual passage, Acts chapter 17. If you were to walk into the city of Athens today, as I did several weeks ago, from the southeastern side, you're going to come to the first theater ever built. It was built right next to the Acropolis, that great massive hill with the Parthenon on top. Uh, You would come to the Greek uh, theater that was built there in the 5th century. Now, that's the 3rd century Roman theater. There's nothing really left of the Greek theater, but that gives you an idea. Right next to this, on the other side of it, was the theater of Dionysius. Now, the Romans called him Bacchus. He was the god of, now listen to this, he was the god of the theater and he was the god of alcohol. Um, two kind of go together, don't they? Well, that's what he was. It was the theater of Dionysius, and um, the Greeks went there, and one of the very first plays that the Greeks ever went to, that was ever held in the first theater ever built, was written by Euripides. Maybe you remember Euripides from your high school world history. He wrote a play called Alcestis or Alcestis. Now, you say, what in the world, preacher, does this have to do with uh, uh, resurrection? Hang on. I want you to listen to this. Alcestis is a play where Euripides writes the opening scene between Apollos, who is the god of the sun. Remember uh, from your Greek mythology that he would drive the sun. He would carry the sun across the sky every day in his chariot and uh, his horses. He was one of the favorite of the Greek gods. Apollos was the god of light. And in the opening scene of this play, uh, there is Apollos, there is Apollos, and he is talking to Thanatos. Now, Thanatos in the Greek is death. It's the word death. It is the word Hades. So, Apollos, the Greek god, is talking to death, Hades. And he is pleading for the life of a friend. He's pleading for the life of a man that he cared a great deal about, that was one of his dear friends, somebody that had done him good, somebody that he cared for. And he pleads, now listen to this, the God of light pleads with the God of death not to take his life. Now I want you to listen to what Thanatos, what Hades says to Apollos. For your weeping will never bring back up those who have perished and gone below. That is, there is no life after life. Now listen to what death says to Apollos. Even the children of the gods perish in dark death. Now, here is dark death speaking to the God of light, Apollo, and he's saying to him, listen, there is nothing you can do about death and the darkness of death. I have overcome your light. 
Now, that is a culture, literally, Paul walks into a city that is built on the culture of no hope whatsoever of life. No hope of resurrection. We believe in no resurrection. There is no possibility of it. Our gods can't do that. Our gods cannot bring back up the dead. Now, Paul walks into that city that is founded on that very concept right there. And when he walks into that city, he runs into four different groups of people. Now, I'm going to show you these, and I'm going to come back to, to them in just a little bit. Number one, he comes across those who are the religiously reclusive. What does Paul do when he comes into the city of Athens? He does what he does in every city. He goes straight to the synagogue. Those were the religiously reclusive. They hid behind their walls. They stayed behind their uh, walls. They stayed in their own community. The Jews really never had much to do with anyone else outside of their own community. And listen, let me tell you, there are a lot of Christians who live the exact same way. They are reclusive in their Christianity. You keep your Christianity inside these four walls right here. When I go out, I never live out. I never express my commitment to Christ. I never live out my Christianity. I never talk about, I never engage in sharing with somebody because I am religiously reclusive and I keep it all right here. Everything I do about God happens right in here and not out there. The second group of people that he comes across are those that are superstitiously idolatrous. There were idols all over the city. In fact, let me, let me just show you something here. Um, bring up, if you would, the Agora of uh, Athens. The main street of Athens, you can still walk down. That's the street Paul walked down right there. Uh, that's way over 2,000 years old, well beyond that. That's the, that's the area of the Agora, the marketplace. All of the things that you see in there, there were gods all all in this place. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. You go off to the other end that you cannot see here, and you have the stoa that's been rebuilt. And off to this other side over here, you have the temple of uh, uh, Hephaestus. Hephaestus is over this way. Uh, the God who is the God of sculpture, the God of art, the God of carpentry, the God of stonework, the God of metalwork. And all of this area where Paul would walk here uh, were these gods, and that's where these, these superstitious idolaters would run from one idol to the next, to the next, to the next. The third group of people that he came across were the atheistic materialist. Those people who essentially said, we don't worship anybody but our own desires. Uh, I worship my desires. I, I don't worship anything else. Anything I want, I give myself to. Anything my body craves or want, wants, that's what I, I get. The person who dies with the most toys win because you die and there is nothing else. So just get all you can in this life. Die and then leave it. Then you come to the fourth group of people who were the fatalistic fatalist. <laughs> uh, they were the opposite of these people who were the materialist. Uh, these fatalistic fatalists were people who were never happy. They never expressed joy. They never expressed grief. They just simply lived life and said, let's just gut it out to the bitter end. Die and there's nothing. Well, that's a great Easter message right there, huh? That's who they were. 
That's who we have in our culture. That's where our society is today. That's where the vast majority of people are. In fact, there's some out of every one of those groups sitting here in this uh, worship center this morning on Easter Sunday morning. That's who Paul walked into that city to speak to. And as he walks through that city and he looks at them, he brings to them the gospel of resurrection. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 18 of Acts chapter 17. There were some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We'll come back to them. They were conversing with him. The reason they were conversing with him because he was preaching. Watch this. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? What is it he's trying to say? What is it that he's saying to us? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Now, let me tell you, that's why they killed Socrates, or that's why they had Socrates kill himself. Uh, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was, now watch this, he was a proclaimer, that literally is the word to preach, to proclaim, because he was proclaiming, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was walking through that marketplace talking to people about Jesus Christ being Lord and about him being the resurrected Savior. The very thing their society said could not happen. The very thing that their culture was founded on, you cannot come back from the dead. There is no life after this life, is the very thing that Paul comes to that city and he's saying this. You need the hope of the resurrected Christ because that is the only thing that will deliver you. You are only delivered by the resurrected Christ. That is your hope for the future. That's your hope for this life, and that's your hope for the life to come. And he's going to show them basically three things, three things that resurrection delivers you from. Three things that you've probably never thought about before. Well, it delivers me from death. Yeah, I, I want to show you. Look, look at what Paul does when he comes to speak to these, uh, to these politically elite. Now, what they do is this. They take Paul to the Areopagus. That is that massive stone. You'll see it right here. It is called, we call it Mars Hill, but there is a massive stone. Do you see all of that rock right there? It juts up from out of the ground. That was the Areopagus, or we call it Mars Hill. It is on that place that the Areopagites would meet. Now, the Areopagites were the politically elite of the ancient world, of ancient Greece, of Athens. They were like the Supreme Court, but they were not just nine of them. There were hundreds of them. Socrates had stood there on Mars Hill on the Areopagus before the Areopagite, and they charged him with taking a new religion to their young people, and they said, we will not tolerate it, so you either take your life or we're going to take it. And so Socrates, several hundred years before Paul stood there, he stood there. Now they're going to bring Paul there. Paul knew who Socrates was. Paul knew Plato. He's going to quote the Greek poets in this chapter. I'm not even going to deal with that. But he will quote the Greek poets in this chapter. Let me tell you, he knew everything about what this moment meant. They're going to take me before the politically elite of this society, and I'm preaching what they say their gods cannot do. 
So he goes knowing, I'm going to risk my life. Now, you think it's difficult to share the gospel of a resurrected Savior in America today? Let me tell you something. It is nothing compared to what Paul was doing in the city of Athens. Greece, Greece was the university of the world. Athens was the university of Greece. In fact, Athens taught Greece how to teach the rest of the world. And the whole thing was this. The Romans had carried, Alexander the Great had carried Hellenism. The Romans now reinforced all of these Greek gods throughout the Roman world. And so Paul comes to the very center of a people and a culture who said there is no resurrection. And he says this, the resurrection delivers you from your spiritual hunger for God. They were spiritually hungry. Look at what he says now. Pick it up in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus on that great big rock there, Mars Hill. And he said this. Uh, in fact, in the Greek, it's this. Anthropoi, ho anthropoi, ho athenaoi, O men of Athens. That is exactly, <laughs> that is exactly the way Plato's Apology of Socrates begins. He knew that piece of writing. He knew that piece of work. Everybody there, all these Areopagus, all these politicians and judges there knew immediately what Paul was doing. Paul went back and he lifted up out of Plato's Apology of Socrates, O men of Athens, and it grabbed their attention. They're listening now. What is he doing? He's quoting Plato here. He's quoting Socrates. He says, men of Athens, I observe. Do you know what that word is in the Greek? Thereo. What does that sound like? Well, I'll tell you, theater. That's what it sounds like. What had I just been talking about? That in the Greek theater that started right there, he says, I have walked through like I was at a theater, and I looked, and I observed, and I watched everything that's going on down there in the marketplace. And what I observe is that you are very religious in all respects. In every single way, you are religious. That literally means more than normal. You, you are more religious than the normal folks just out there in the rest of the world, you are very, there is a spiritual hunger that is obvious when I look at what's going on with you. Now, the people that had taken him there were the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans were those who said this. They were essentially the atheistic materialist. They didn't believe in God. Or if there was a God, they said, God, so far away, you can't, you can't get to, those gods aren't interested in us. The, the Greeks believed that the gods lived up on Mount Olympus, and uh, you could not really get up there to where the gods were, and they didn't come down. They didn't bother with us. And so the Epicureans basically said this, um, you know, if there is a God, they're so far away, it doesn't make any difference. What you do is this, you just live for all the pleasure you can get. Do you know the great theologian from Kiss? who uh, wrote the song, I want to rock and roll all day and party every night? Well, that's the Epicureans. The Epicureans said that before Kiss ever came along. We want to rock and roll all day and just party every night. And then what's going to happen? We just die and there's nothing. 
So you might as well just go out there and do whatever your mind tells you to do, whatever your body wants to do. And then on the other side, you have the Stoics. The Stoics were those who were 180 degrees, the opposite direction of the Epicureans. The Stoics would say, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be sad. I'm not going to be anything. I will show no emotion. I will not laugh. I will not cry. I will just, I will just smirk and I will gut out this life. It is miserable. It is terrible. And then you die. Lord, let me tell you, there are people on both extremes right there that are in the church, that are in the church. Just do whatever you want to do. And the others who just simply say life is so bad, life is so miserable, life is so horrible that we're just going to just gut it out and die. All of that expresses what? It expresses a spiritual hunger. I see people, listen, from one extreme to the other and all the way in between today, people are expressing in a thousand and one ways that they are spiritually starved. They are spiritually hunger, hungry, but they cannot find satisfaction out there in anything. No matter what they do, no matter where they go, they're never satisfied with life. Let me tell you something. I read a fascinating piece of research uh, Roger Stark wrote a book just a couple of years ago on extensive research that he did that is fascinating. Now, you hear all of this stuff that Christianity is dying, that religion is going away. Listen, he says the opposite is true. I want you to listen to what he says. He says this, the world is more religious now than it has ever been. This is unbelievable. He says, around the globe, four out of every five people claim to belong to an organized faith, and many of the rest say they attend worship services. Can you believe that? In Latin America, Pentecostal Protestant churches have converted tens of millions of people. The gospel is moving south and east, by the way, folks. Latin America, South America is in the midst of an unbelievable revival. People are coming to Christ by the millions. The same is happening as you move east into China. You'll hear this in just a moment. Catholics are going to mass in unprecedented numbers. I, I woke up at four o'clock this morning to that song, um, uh, Alleluia, um, 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 Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah. But it was being sung from the Vatican. Did you see that this morning? The, the Pope outside in a mass spoke to 55,000 people. 55, I didn't know 55,000 people in Italy would even go to church. Well, they did today. There are more church-going Christians in sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else on the earth. Do you know there are more Baptists in India than there are in the United States? Listen to this. They believe, we can't get figures, but they believe that China is rapidly becoming the largest Christian center in the world, regardless of what she and the communists are doing there. Meanwhile, throughout the rest of the world, not growing, listen to this, not growing as rapidly as Christianity, Islam enjoys far higher levels of member commitment than it has for many centuries. I read an article this week 
that uh, there is a great concern in the Muslim world with wives and mothers because they are the gatekeepers of Islam in the, in the home, in the family. And they say that the concern is so many female wives and mothers are coming to Jesus Christ. Hey, hey, just sit there. Good night. I'm going to start running around the place. Can you believe that? Many of them, many of them coming to Jesus Christ. It was reported out of Middle East news that Joel Rosenberg is the genius behind that. He says they are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. Islam enjoys far, far higher levels of member commitment than many, for many centuries. The same is true for Hinduism. In fact, of all the great world religions, only Buddhism may not be growing. Furthermore, in every nook and cranny left by organized faith, all manner of unconventional, unchurched supernaturalisms are booming. People around the world are spiritually hungry. Listen to this. There are more occult healers than medical doctors in Russia today. 38% of the French who don't believe anything believe in astrology. 38%. 35% of the Swiss agree that some fortune tellers really can foresee the future, and nearly everyone in Japan is careful to have a home or a new car blessed by a Shinto priest. Now, I want to tell you what I think and, and what I see happening in our country is this. Our, listen, our nation is turning to the supernatural in the area of the occult. Everything I read about Generation Z says that they are looking to the occult for answers. So I got, early this morning, I got on the internet, and you know what I did? I just looked up, because I saw a commercial for a television program that is one of the leading sitcoms right now called Ghost. Do you know that there are 42 television shows on Ghost on TV right now? 42. 42. People who will tell you, oh, I don't believe in God. Listen, my house is haunted. Uh, people that'll tell you, I don't, I don't believe in all of that stuff that you read in the Bible, but I want to tell you something. We had a paranormal come to the house to do something because there's some weird stuff going on. People are believing anything today. Why? Because there is a spiritual hunger inside of man, and Paul comes and he says, only the resurrected Christ can satisfy your spiritual hunger. Now, let me give you the second thing. He says that resurrection, this gospel of resurrection, is going to deliver you from religious misdirection. Now, I've just talked about religious misdirection, people that believe in astrology, people that believe in ghosts, people that believe in fortune tellers, people that believe you can channel from the dead. I'm going to read you just one verse because I want to read it. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19. I want you to listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, when it comes on the commercials, call this live psychic advisor. Call these people, oh, they got my life right. They told me what was going to happen. Listen, Isaiah writes and he says this, should not a people consult with their God? Instead of calling some live psychic advisor or going to somebody who tells a fortune or somebody who channels somebody that's dead, don't you think it would be better to talk to a living God? 
He says this, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I don't want to hear anything out of anybody that's dead. I want to hear from a resurrected Christ. Nobody dead has anything I want to hear. I don't care who it is. I don't want to hear it. Who I do listen to is the one who died, who walked out of that tomb. <laughs> well, that's what he's talking about here. He says you're spiritually misdirected. It's an amazing thing. If you look back at verse 16, Paul, while he was waiting for them at Athens, that's Silas and Timothy, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed. As he was walking through that agora, he saw a city full of idols. Kataidolos. Idolos, idol, kata, the prefix, it means lush. The word literally means lush, replete, full, thick with idols. When Paul walked into the city of Athens in 50 AD, it was a city that had been in great decline for several hundred years. There were only 10,000 people in the city of Athens when Paul showed up there. You know how many gods there were? 30,000 statues of gods in the city of Athens. All of that that I showed you down. Put back up the Parthenon, if you would. Look at this, up on this Parthenon. Paul, this was just above Paul. Paul standing on Mars Hill. He looks up. There's the temple to uh, Athena. Inside that temple was a ivory and gold statue of Athena. Right out in front, you see these people standing right here. If you just walk out just a little ways in front of them, there stood nearly a 60-foot-tall idol of Athena. She was made out of brass. Her crown was made out of gold. And uh, they say that from a ship, you could see the sun on a clear day shine off the crown of Athena 50 miles out to sea. Pretty fascinating. Pretty amazing. There was the temple of Athena right there. You have the temple of the maidens that are over here. Right next to this, as you go up, right as you were going up, from here, you're under the Erechtheon, the temple that was the Erechtheon. And right in front of this temple, the Parthenon right there, is the temple to Nike. Paul could have bought, he may have bought tennis shoes while he was there. For all I know, the temple to Nike was right there. He's looking at all of this and he's saying, look, you're running from temple to temple to temple to temple. There were at least five different temples that were up there on the Acropolis. There were all of the idols, some 30,000 of them down there in the Agora. He says, you're running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. You go to this and you go to that and you go to the other. And he says, what you're doing is this. Listen to what he says in verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. He says, you are so spiritually misdirected, you're running after everything and you're like blind men groping in the darkness for something that you cannot find. Or it's like you in the darkness. I got here about 5 o'clock, 5.10 this morning. And uh, you know one of the spookiest places to be uh, when it's dark and nobody's around is a church. And I come in, and one of the first thing I do when I come in the front door, I come down. I come down the hallway, and I start turning on lights. 
And I go around the whole bit. I want the lights on. I come in here and turn these lights on. I, I want lights on everywhere. But this dark hallway back down this way, every Sunday morning I do the same thing. It, it is so dark going down that hallway there that I have to put my hand on the wall and just kind of feel all the way down until I come to the light switch. That's what, that's what he's saying. That's the word. He says, you are so spiritually misdirected. You're out there just groping for this thing to that thing to another thing. The amazing thing to me is that I see Christians in the church. I see people in the church doing the same thing. They go from book to book as if that's going to do something. They go from this personality to that personality to this preacher to that evangelist to this star to that star to this retreat to that retreat. And it is a constant groping in the dark spiritually misdirected, let me tell you, no one, no one can give you direction spiritually except the resurrected Christ. He comes, watch this. He comes in verse 23. He says, I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. All of the, I found an altar with this inscription. Here's how misdirected they were to an unknown God. He says, you've got this altar that's down there in the marketplace to an unknown God. Do you know how that came about? 600 years before Paul ever showed up in the city of Athens, there was a plague, much like what we've gone through with COVID, except far more deadly. I don't know if it was what would eventually become you know, the bubonic plague or not, but thousands of people in Athens were dying. And so they would go, all of the people following their priests, they would go to this statue, they would go to that temple, they would go to the next statue, they'd go to the next temple, and they were offering all these sacrifices to all of these thousands of gods that were there. And the plague didn't stop. And so one of their leaders stepped forward and said, we're going to do something. We're going to try this. We're going to bring in a flock of goats, and we're going to let the flock of goats go down in that agora, in that marketplace, and wherever the goats go, and when they settle down, if they settle down next to one of these statues, one of these gods, we will sacrifice to that God. We'll take it that that God is saying, I want you to sacrifice to me. But if they go to a place and they lie down where there is no statue, where there is no God, we will erect an altar to an unknown God and sacrifice to him. That's how spiritually misdirected they were. To follow a bunch of goats around, and wherever they settled, that's where that altar came from. In the city of Athens, that's what Paul was referring to. And he's saying to them, you are spiritually, religiously misdirected. You don't know where to go. Some of you are like that. I've gone everywhere I know to go. I've asked and talked to everybody. I've counseled with this person and that person and everyone else, and I don't know where to go anymore because I am just spiritually hungry, but there is this spiritual misdirection in my life. Paul comes and he says, <laughs> the only answer for that is the resurrected Christ. Let me show you the third thing. And the third thing is this. 
that resurrection delivers you from spiritual, personal brokenness. Put that picture back up, if you would, Brody, of the Parthenon. Whenever I go to the ancient world, like when I go to Greece, when I go to Israel, which I'm, I'm going to Israel in March, March 22nd next year, I'm going to take a group there. Do you see all that scaffolding there? You know where it was about four or five years ago when I was last in Greece? It was around on the other side. They were putting up pieces on the other side. Those pieces along the top, they were putting up. Do you know why? Because they keep digging up. They keep finding pieces of this, uh, of this Parthenon, of this temple. And do you see all the white in the columns there? That, that's just made up concrete that they have to put in as they find a piece here. They may find a piece this big. They may find a piece this big. And so they're putting it back together. Why? Because it was all broken. You remember when I preached on Esther, told you about Xerxes? Xerxes took this. He took the top of the Acropolis of Greece. Now, the Parthenon was not there. Other temples were there. He completely destroyed. He set it on fire. He burned everything that was on top of their holy hill right there. That ought to convince you that those gods weren't real to begin with. Uh, and then Pericles comes after the Persians are driven out of Greece. Pericles, who is a brilliant architect, comes and he builds what is called the most perfect building in all of history. He builds the Parthenon there. And uh, sometime around 1453, the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims, begin to move west. And sometime around 1453, the Turks take this hill they're shooting down on the Greeks, and they store all of their gunpowder. It becomes a gunpowder magazine. And the Venetians, who are fighting with, uh, alongside of the Greeks, shoot at the Turks up there, and they hit that building, and it explodes into a billion, billion pieces. And what you've got is you have a broken society, and you have a broken culture and you have broken people. That's all I can see when I go there. All of the stuff that's been put back together, I can find a couple of pieces and when we put them back together. It speaks of the brokenness of life. It speaks of the brokenness of their belief system. It speaks of the brokenness of their spiritual life. And so there, in that place of brokenness, Jesus, Paul comes and he says, the only answer to your personal brokenness is Jesus Christ, the resurrected God. Now watch this. I'm going to pick it up at the end of verse 23. Therefore, because of your spiritual hunger, because of your religious misdirection, because of your personal brokenness, therefore what you worship in ignorance, you don't know what to worship. I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to give you the gospel. Now watch it what he does because he's going to start with God as creator. I can't tell you how important that is. He starts with God as creator. And look at what he does. I'm going to give you this quickly. Number one, 
God is creator. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in, in temples made with hands. All Paul's got to do is point up there to the Erechtheion, to the temple of Nike, to the Parthenon, to all of these temples around. He says, listen, let me tell you something. The real God is too big to be kept in one of these buildings here. Amen is right. Three of us awake in here. The second thing is this. Look at verse 25. He says he's not only creator, he's sustainer. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you know what the Greek gods did? The Greek gods were constantly telling the people, you've got to bring us this and do this for us and, and get this for us and get that for us. Paul comes to say the true and living God doesn't need a cotton-picking thing you got. He's the guy who gave it all to you. He's the one who sustains your life. You don't have to keep your God. You have to keep your gods up. I don't have to keep my God up because my God is sustainer. He keeps me up. Ooh, that's good. Number three, verse 26, he made from one man. He's ruler. He made from one man every nation of mankind. Now, do you hear that right there? Paul comes and he says right here, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face. Whether you're red, yellow, black, white, or anything in between, you all, we all come from one person, Adam. God, listen, the division comes because of Satan. We all come from one. He, he made from every man, he made every nation from one man to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries, their habitations, that they would seek him. That's why you're spiritually hungry. That's why you're here today. I want to know, is there something out there for me? They might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. You see, your gods are. Your gods are off out there on Mount Olympus. You can't get to them. They don't ever bother to come down here to you. That's not so with our God, the true and living God. He is here. He's in this room. He's in the hearts of many people in this auditorium right now. He comes and he says, listen, you need to understand that he is ruler over all of life and not only ruler. Watch this. He gets more personal. Verse 29, he's father. Now, none of them ever called these Greek gods father. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. He says, look at all these statues that you bow down and worship to. You made them. They're nothing like you. You're not stone. You're not silver. You're not bronze. Uh, you are flesh and blood. You're nothing like these gods you've made and you turn around and worship. Is that not the dumbest thing you've ever heard in your life? And yet, what do we do? We worship our diplomas. We worship our bank accounts. We worship a business. We worship a building. We worship a relationship. It's just as idolatrous as they were. Just as crazy. He says, listen, let me tell you, our God is Father. We are his children. We didn't make him. He birthed us. And he gives the fifth thing in this. He says, listen, 
He's judge. Now watch this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, that doesn't mean that God is overlooking sin. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't say that God is just going to shove sin out of the way. No, it says this. What it's saying is God has been merciful and God has been gracious not to zap the fire out of you by now. Now, that's what he's saying. God is now declaring. Look at that. Do you see that? He says God is declaring. Our God talks. Our God speaks. Here's his word right here. He says, when has any one of these statues ever opened its mouth and said anything to you? He says, our God is declaring. He is declaring to men that all people everywhere, now here comes the real issue, should repent. Why should they repent? Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Who's the man? Jesus that I've been preaching. He's going to judge the world through a man. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And they all look and they say, well, now, how do we know that what you're telling us is true? How do we know that your God is creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and that we're going to stand before him and Jesus will judge us one day? He says, because he raised that man from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Do you hear what he's saying to them? He's saying, my God can do what your gods cannot do. Doggone. Give life. Give you life now. Give you hope now. And give you life eternal, hope for the world to come. He says, my God can give you what your gods say is impossible to do. And he's done it. He's raised up Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let, me t let me tell you, that's not really the issue here. You want to know what the real issue is? It's that little word, repent, right there. Hey, Paul, if what you're telling me is true, then I've got to do what you're saying and repent. And what repentance means is to say that I am wrong. That my life system, my belief system, my worldview, and that everything that I've been involved in and doing is absolutely wrong. I've got to go before him and confess that I'm wrong and he's right. And I want to tell you, we choke at that. You know what I'm going to do next Sunday? I'm going to preach on revival. I was headed off to another passage to preach, but I'm going to preach on revival next Sunday because I've had so many of the younger people in this church ask the question, what, is, what actually do you mean by revival? And not just young people. I've had other people ask me uh, for the last two weeks, what, what do you mean by praying for revival? Today we start. I'm asking all of those part of my uh, pastor's prayer group to begin to pray for this church for revival. And people have asked, what, what is that? Is that, do you mean we're going to have a series of meetings? That's not what revival is. He said, well, we had revival. Listen, uh, no, we, no, you didn't. You, you had a series of meetings. If you had revival back years ago, we wouldn't be in the shape we're in right now. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. So I'm going to share with you next week what revival is. And what does it mean to pray for revival? Well, it starts with one thing. Do you know what it starts with? The one thing we don't like to hear about. I have to repent. Do you know why? Because there's sin in my life. There's stuff in my life that is not right. And that's exactly what happened here. 
there were those that were saved. One of them was one of the politically elite by the name of Dionysius. Is that not funny? The, the guy was named after the God for alcohol and theater. Dionys he gets saved. I think that's why the Holy Spirit puts it in here, is to say, look who gets saved of the preaching of the gospel of resurrection. You ever heard of G.B. Uh, G. Hardy? G.B. Hardy was a Canadian scientist um, who... Um, got really serious about this whole thing of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, uh, you know about uh, Boxing Day. It's the day after Christmas on the calendar every year. Everybody gets to December 26, and it says Boxing Day in Canada. Everybody wants to know, what is Boxing Day? What does that mean? Uh, and uh, G.B. Hardy says this. He says, every single person is going to face Boxing Day. Now, it's not what they mean in Canada. He says, you're going to face Boxing Day. That's the day they put you in the box. And he says, I've just got two questions about the day they put me in the box. Number one, I want to know this. Has anybody ever cheated death? And number two, can they show me how to do it? He asked those two questions, and he began to study. He began to look. He says, I had these two questions. One, has anybody ever cheated death? And two, did they make a way for me to do it? And he began to search the religions of the world. He says in his book, I checked out the tombs of all the religious leaders and found them occupied except the tomb of Jesus, which was empty. I studied history and scripture, and it was confirmed to me that he indeed had risen from the dead. Let me tell you something. I've been to that tomb there's nobody in there. Do you know where Muhammad is buried? He's buried under the green dome in Medina. Do you want to know where Buddha is buried? They have found the ashes of Buddha so much for nirvana. They have found the ashes of Buddha in China. They come to Krishna, Lord Krishna, the one that Harrison sang that song to, you know, Krishna, Krishna, Lord Krishna. He died somewhere in India, and the story goes that he left his body behind while his spirit tried to outrun the other gods. Well, I got news for you. My God didn't leave anything behind. That body got up in resurrection, and that's exactly what G.B. Hardy said. He said, I discovered that that tomb was empty. All the other gods are dead. And he said, that answered for me. Question number one, that somebody had cheated death. And question number two, did they make a way for me to do it? I discovered the truth out of John 14, 19. Because I live, you too shall live. Resurrection gospel. For every single one of us, what about you? Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Maybe you're here this morning. You say, you know, I fit right in one of those groups you talked about. I fit right in that group that is just the religiously reclusive. I, I, I have hidden behind my home. I've hidden behind the walls at church, and I've never really lived out Christianity. Let me tell you something. You don't get that out of the New Testament. That's not, a, that's not at all the way God wants you to live. It may be that you have never really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
Others of you here this morning, listen, maybe it's a superstitious idolatry. You've run from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. You're spiritually and personally misdirected. You're religiously misdirected. You're trying everything in the world out there. I was in Memphis a couple of weeks ago, and it's just fascinating to look at the life of Elvis Presley, who was dabbling in everything that there was, starving, spiritually, hungry to know. Is there life after this life? Is there any meaning to this life? The guy owned everything. He was like the materialist who say everything is in all the toys that I can get, all the things that I can own. And then there are those that are just the fatalist. Destiny is everything, Uhtred said. Destiny is everything. No need to be excited. No need to have any hope. No need to have any joy. No need to grieve. Just gut it out through this life and get by. And go through the misery of life and die. And in all honesty, live through the misery of hell for eternity. How about you? If you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe on this Easter Sunday morning, what better morning than this morning? You say, I want to do that. I, I do want to give my life to Christ. I'm spiritually starved. I've run from one thing to the other. If you're here this morning and you want to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray in your heart. I asked the last service. We had a number of people who shared that they had prayed to give their life to Jesus Christ. I pray that right now you're serious, that you're listening, and that you will pray as well. Here's what I do. How do I know that I can be saved? By giving your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. By putting your faith in him. By coming to him and confessing that you're a sinner. Come in repentance. Come and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I'm in sin right now. And I come and I ask you to forgive me of that sin. You came to die for my sin. You paid the penalty for my sin. But then you were raised from the dead to give me hope and life and possibility and meaning and to have life eternal. So I come to put my faith and my trust in you. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, no one looking, I want you just to lift your hand up. Just lift your hand. Just simply slip it up and say, I prayed that prayer. Yes, a number of you have. I've prayed that prayer this morning to give my life to Jesus Christ. Others, I'm trusting him. Now, this is what I encourage you to do. Come now publicly and follow him. Come now and take my hand and say, I've prayed to give my life to Jesus Christ. Now I want to publicly follow. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Others of you have been visiting this church for months. God's speaking to your heart. God's nourishing you and feeding you. You're beginning to grow spiritually. God is beginning to work in your life. I'm inviting you, come. Make this your church home. Come and say, I want to be part of the family of God here. Others of you need to come to this altar. 
Lord, I have no idea what you're saying to every heart that is here this morning, but I am praying right now that, Father, as you speak to hearts, there would be such a freedom for people to respond that nothing could hold them back for making public the decision they need to make. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Just keep your heads bowed, if you would. In this wonderful spirit of prayer, would you come right now? I'm standing here waiting. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.